Gospel lesson for this morning comes from Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14 and it's titled The Parable of the Pharisee and the Tax Collector. To some who were, cons- who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like these other men, the robbers, the evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray as we open up the word of God. Father, we ask that these words which your spirit penned so long ago, that by your spirit, that same spirit, that he might speak to us this morning, that he might challenge and shape us, that he might encourage and spur us on, and most importantly, that he might see, give us the eyes to see ourselves for who we really are, and the things that we cling to for salvation. And may he give us the eyes to see you for who you really are, that we might cling to you and to you alone, we pray. Amen. Uh, We have been um, uh, having this series, Stories That Jesus Told, um, Flannery O'Connor, she uh, was one of the most prolific storytellers. Uh, she wrote many, many short stories. She's American. Um, uh, don't hold that against her. Uh, but she was asked by an interviewer once, um, can you sum up this story in just one sentence? And she said, if I could sum it up in one sentence... I wouldn't have had to write the story. And what she's not saying is that she couldn't have just given you kind of a summary or a brief, but what she was trying to say was that the richest, the the deepest, the most weighty and glorious things in life really can't just be summed up in a sentence, but can only be fully grasped, fully felt, fully hit and struck by in and through a story. And so Jesus tells this story, as he tells many other stories, of two men going to the temple to pray. And uh, one of the things that uh, I most love about Australian culture, I think, does us the greatest disservice when it comes to this story. And that is, I love that in Australia, we love to cheer for the underdog. 
don't we? One of our greatest heroes, Stephen Bradbury. Stephen Bradbury, if you don't know who he is, was our first winter gold medalist. And he won because he was a mile behind everyone else who tripped over just kind of five metres out from the finish line. We love to cheer for the underdog. We love the David in the Goliath story. And not just that, but if you've ever been near a church, if you've ever read a children's Bible, you can pick the Pharisee from a mile away. Because they look like you before having a morning coffee. They're just kind of, they're frowny, grumpy. In fact, um, uh, when we re- read Bible stories with Jacob and Archer, Jacob often will point to the Pharisees and he will say, they're the baddies. And you know how he knows that they're the baddies? Because they look like baddies. But when we come to this story, it can be of incredible disservice to us, those things. Because in the Gospels, there are both good Pharisees and there are bad Pharisees. There are Pharisees who are both devoted and faithful and pursue the Lord. And there are Pharisees that simply seek to grow power and uh, and acclaim for themselves. And so we read verse 10 and we hear that two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, and we immediately know who to boo for. And we tend to villainize the Pharisees as if they are the bad guys. And we can sometimes be guilty of praying the Pharisees' prayer, thank you God that I am not like the Pharisees. Because Pharisees in their day, they were the religious elite. They far outstripped everyone in terms of devotion to the law. So for many of them in their training, they had to memorize whole books of the Old Testament. Whole books. I don't know what your last memory verse was. I'm guessing it wasn't Leviticus. In Hebrew. Like, imagine being able to rattle off the entirety of Leviticus from memory. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Can we put the Bible verse on the screen? Sorry, that would be really helpful. I left clear down there. That would be great. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself. Where's he standing? By himself. So this isn't him kind of standing up in front of everyone saying, look at me. Everyone hear what I am going to say. In, in fact, don't let the standing fool you. That's the common way. It's kind of like kneeling in our kind of current social setting. 
for an Old Testament Jew, if you're a man or a woman, you would stand to pray often. And so the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you. Who's he thanking? God. God, I thank you. I thank you. I'm grateful to you that you have kept me from the slippery path. Thank you that you have kept me from falling into stealing from anyone. Thank you that you have kept me faithful to my wife. And even to Jewish ears, the inclusion of things like, or even this tax collector, seemed appropriate. In fact, God, thank you for keeping me from betraying my people and betraying you for the sake of greed would have seemed like a reasonable thing to pray. Not only that, but he says, I, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. He fasts twice a week. Twice a week he goes without food. And that's not because he's a uni student. And Migarang hasn't been invented yet. He fasts twice a week, whereas in the Jewish law it was once a year. Twice a week he fasts, goes without food, and then he gives a tenth of all he gets. Everything. Like there are accounts of uh, Pharisees who would pick their herb garden in the morning and they would be like, okay, 10% of this rosemary and mint goes to the church. That's why Jack Wolf actually brings spinach every, every Sunday, actually. He gave me figs this morning. I appreciate that. 10%. He goes above and beyond, and, and here is the point of Jesus' story so far. That this guy surpasses all of us when it comes to devotion to God and obedience to the law. When it comes to devotion to God and obedience to the law, this guy is kicking it out of the park and you are miles behind. You're not even tasting his dust. He is so far ahead. But the tax collector, the tax collector stands at a distance. You see, what happened back in that time was Rome invaded and they killed your children or your husbands. They um, raped and pillaged your wives and your daughters and then they charged you for protection. Imagine having those people come and knock on your door saying, now you pay us. I don't have a son now because of you. And you're wanting me to pay you for protection? But Rome doesn't do the dirty work. In fact, one of your friends, the guy two doors down, puts up his hand and he says, I'll collect 
my friends and neighbours' money and give it to those people that have abused and mistreated and killed us. Burnt down our homes. And not just that, but I'll actually charge double so that I can sleep in finer silk tonight. They are the lowest of the low in this culture and time. In today's culture, I was trying to think of the closest social equivalent, and perhaps it is drug pushers, pimps or pedophiles, those who prey on society, who would make money off the abuse and the vulnerability of others. The lowest of the low. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, actually, and and probably a more accurate translation is, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man went home justified before God. This guy. Despite all of his sin, despite all of his wrongdoing, despite all of the muck and the grime and the terrible history that he has done, despite it all, he goes home justified. Not not when he then gives up that money, not when he then goes and cleans up his life, not after he goes through a membership course. Then, like a light switch moment, he is now justified. It doesn't mean that he's not a mess anymore. But it means that he's accepted before God. Welcomed. He asks for mercy. He depends on mercy alone. And anyone that knows anything about stability, whether that's building a building or whether that's playing on a rugby field, you know this, that the the key to stability is standing firm on one thing. And for that to be the right thing. So if you're building, you need to have a strong foundation but you can't have two strong foundations. You need to have sure footing, but you can't just have sure footing on three different things. He stands on one thing alone, not based on his own goodness, his own righteousness, not based on his own works. The text is intentionally silent about it all. But he asks for the mercy of God. Literally, the word mercy is not the normal word mercy, but simply the word hysterion more accurately means atone for my sins. He has nothing to depend on but the mercy of God alone. And Jesus says that's enough. That the only qualification to justification is to realize you are unqualified. That's the only qualification. And here's what's great about it, is that it means then that it's an even playing field, that it's open to everyone. 
regardless of your IQ or EQ or age Q. It is open to everyone, regardless of backgrounds. That the only qualification is to realize that you are unqualified and to ask for mercy. And so it means it does not matter how you came in here this morning. And it means that you can be honest and admit where you are really at. That it means that you don't need to pretend that you are someone you are not. It means that you can be honest with where you're at and not despair. Or perhaps more accurately, that you can find someone that you can despair to. Someone that you can despair to about the state of your heart and not be rejected. That you don't need to play games anymore about the level of alcohol that you seem to consume. That you don't need to play games or give justifications anymore for why you are going to certain websites. For why you are drawn to the workplace or why you are tempted to flirt with the secretary. It means you can be honest about the state and the depth and the depravity of your heart. It means you don't need to pretend like you are better or your marriage is better than it really is. And in the face of such grace, judgmentalism, spiritual elitism, is completely undone. Because perhaps the measure as to whether you get this or not is how do you go when others fail you? Perhaps the test of your heart is how do I respond when others let me down? Do I respond with anger and frustration and kind of, I knew they were going to do that. Or do we respond not with criticism but with grace and gentleness? And and that doesn't mean that um, we don't address the problem. It doesn't doesn't mean that we don't call sin sin. In, In the West, Um, There is kind of this notion that to call sin, sin in Christianity is kind of that you must have some kind of arrogance to go along with that or some kind of judgmentalism or some kind of um, arrogance. And yet Jesus came into the world, walked with gentleness, and yet he was able to call sin, sin, wasn't he? Jesus doesn't come into the world and tell the world that it's right. And yet he walks with people, he walks with those who are struggling and drowning in sin, and he confronts those who are not wrestling with sin, 
about the reality and the despair and the wickedness and the evil that sin really is. And so it means that we might walk with others who we disagree with well. And if I can tangent back for a second, uh, I remember reading this passage with uh, someone uh, in kind of like a one-to-one Bible reading kind of thing. And, and the guy asked, he said, how do you then... How do you then grow in Bible reading or how do you then grow in spiritual disciplines and devotion and not grow in arrogance? So what's the tension there? How do you grow in more prayer life or grow in fasting, grow in giving, but not grow in judgmentalism against those who aren't giving as much? A lecturer of mine when I was at YouthWorks said this. He, in answering this exact question, he said, here's what he has found helpful. He says, I remind myself that my need to read my Bible every day is because I am, because I am quick to forget the promises of God. He says that I tithe and seek to give generously. Why? Because my heart has a problem with greed and continually seeking to find its home in this world. How do you grow in these things? By reminding yourself of why it is you do it. I, I need to read the Bible every day. Why? Because I'm, I have a quickness in forgetting the promises of God. Because my heart is drawn to things it ought not to be. I tell you that this man went home justified before God. And if that was all that Jesus said, it would be a great story. And it is. It's a great story. But Jesus had four other words that make this a scary story as well. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. That the first man is not justified. That the first man, despite all of his devotion and his dedication, walks out thinking he is righteous, thinking he is right with God. And he's not. And he doesn't realize it, but there is a train coming. Let me finish with this. One of the best books I've read in the last five years is a book called Storm Tossed Family by Russell Moore. He says this, chapter 13, he says, taking a break, it's a, it's a book all about how the cross shapes kind of family and thinking through that lens. He writes this, he says, taking a break from writing this chapter, I stopped in the hallway to watch my son Samuel walk past me. 
12 years old now, he looks more like the man he will be than the toddler I mentioned before. I can't help but wonder what burdens await him, dealing with me at the end of my story. Will I be insisting on keeping all my books after I am too frail to walk up the stairs to my library? Will he have to tell me I can't have my library in my little apartment at the senior care centre? Even worse, will he have to wipe the drool from my chin as I lie in a hospital bed somewhere? Will his last memories of me be of emptying my bedpan or changing my colostomy bag? I don't want him to remember me like that. I want him to remember me as the father who would sit in the floor and pretend to be a dinosaur when he was little. Or the world of activity who was, uh, or as the world of activity who was preaching and teaching and debating important issues on television. I don't like those thoughts because they betray my pride and selfishness. It just may be that in those moments of my gasping for air, my son will see the real me better than he ever has. He will see there the one who, like a crucified robber, can only look to the seemingly helpless man on the other side of me and say, as I spit the welling blood from my mouth, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we have nothing else to cling to. We have no other argument, no other plea. And yet it is enough that you died, that you died for me. We pray that you might help us to cling to you. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. We who are sinners, forgive us for the things we have done wrong. Atone for our sins. And we thank you for how you have atoned for our sins. Amen.